Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to a bonus episode of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast series. And this is going to be a presentation that I delivered this year at the 17th Annual NPA Conference that was held at California State University, Long Beach. It's essentially a longer version of episode 21, where we walk through the failure of Einstein's spherical wave proof. In today's presentation, we're going to cover four points. Well, first, we're going to begin with a review of some of the challenge categories against relativity theory and why they haven't been successful. Then we're going to review the spherical wave proof failure. We're going to discuss some of the implications and talk about next steps. Let's begin with what relativity theory is. First off, relativity theory is actually a collection of two separate theories. One is called special relativity theory and the other is called general relativity theory. Each theory walks through a derivation process that's very similar to the other. It begins with assumptions, which leads to derivations, which is the mathematics, goes through a proof, which validates the derivation, and wraps up with implications. And this is the implication sections is where you get ideas like time dilation, length contraction, and space time curvature. Both theories are also supported by a body of experimental evidence. Now many people have challenged relativity theory, predominantly special relativity theory, and I believe that's because it's a little bit easier to understand than general relativity theory. But many of these challenges haven't been as successful as we'd like. These, the categories for these challenges are going from right to left, paradoxes, which challenge the implications, um, interpretations or new experiments, which goes against the experimental evidence, identification of math mistakes, which goes against the derivation, or revised assumptions, which goes against the assumption set. Each of these is well defended. For example, the paradox one, since assumptions lead to derivation, leads to proof, leads to implications, all a defender has to do is ask, where does the problem originate? assumptions, derivation, or proof. And if the person can't answer that, then they will claim it's a lack of understanding. And if they can, then whatever other challenge they now face, there's still a defense waiting for them around the corner that they can use. Now, many of these challenges have not been successful in changing people's minds because they first have to convince someone of a problem. Meaning, if you believe what I say about this, then you can see the problem. Well, the recipient, all they need to do is not accept the if part of that sentence. So that makes actually convincing very, very hard because they all they have to do is not accept that bit of information into their body of knowledge. Today, we're going to do something different. We're going to remind people of something that they already know. And this should be a much easier proposition because we're not trying to convince them. We're trying to say, you already know something exists. You already know it to be true. We're just going to remind you of that. So let's look at what we're going to talk about today. Let's look first where I spend a lot of my time, which is in the mathematical challenges area. So I'm saying that there is a problem in special relativity theory, in all of relativity theory actually, a mathematical problem that will render it incorrect. The defense is, sure Steve, there may be mathematical errors, they're all insignificant because you have to answer the question. If there was a mistake in the theory of relativity, why does Einstein's spherical wave proof work? This is actually a very good and valid question because if the proof works, that's a strong indication that the derivation is probably right. And so if I'm right and there is a math mistake, 
then perhaps there's something wrong with the proof. So that's the question that we're going to examine today. And if you look at the diagram, you'll notice something that I found very interesting when I was doing my research, which is so far the proof is one aspect of special relativity theory that hasn't been challenged before. So let's begin by looking at Einstein's proof. Actually, it consists of six sentences, and we have them here, and the six sentences are broken into three areas. The first area is the claim. Now, this is a very important claim because this is what Einstein is trying to prove. In effect, if he can walk through these six sentences and get through it, it's this claim that establishes the theory of relativity. If you don't get through these six sentences, then you're not able to make this claim, and we don't have the theory. The second part is the math proof, and the math proof is actually pretty straightforward. We're going to look at that in just a second because the third part is the conclusion. So again, if you're able to state what he's trying to claim, go through the math proof and reach his conclusion, then again, we've established relativity theory. If he's unable to do that, we don't have relativity theory. Now the key thing that I want us to remember as we walk through the mathematics today is that Einstein's trying to prove that if you start with a sphere, which is represented by an equation, and then you use the transformation equations to come up with another equation that also represent a sphere. So in effect, if you can go from one sphere to another sphere, then he has reached his conclusion and is able to make his claim. So let's take a look at a, a quick summary of what we're going to what we're trying to look at. So we have a sphere and that leads us to equations one, and all the points on that sphere have to adhere to that equation. We take those points, run them through the transformation equations, which are basically Einstein's equations, and that then we, that we get a set of points and we validate that against equation two. If all of those points also adhere to that equation, we know we have a second sphere. If we can make it through all four of these steps, Einstein's proof works. But there's two questions that we have to ask ourselves when we go through this. The first one is, every time we have points that represent a sphere in sphere one, does that mean that they all adhere to equations one? The second question is, every time we have points that adhere to equations two, does that mean we have sphere two? Those are the two key questions that have to be answered yes, and we're going to examine today. So let's begin with the definition of a sphere. We're just going to take the commonly accepted definition, and there's really three things that you have to look at. Number one, a sphere is the set of all points, that's number one, that's located a given distance, called the radius, that's number two, from a given center point, that's number three. So if we're able to, to do those three things, we will have a sphere. Now mathematically, we've represented a, theor a sphere by the equation on the bottom left-hand side. Now today, in the next couple of slides, I'm going to use the equation on the right-hand side for a circle, only because it's easier to draw in a, in a PowerPoint presentation. But rest assured, the same conclusions we can draw with a 2D circle will apply for our 3D sphere. So first, what we need to do is look at the points of a circle and see if they adhere to the equation. So we're going to plot four points, and we're going to get their x, y, and r values, and we're going to confirm on a row-by-row -row basis, does x squared plus y squared equal r squared? And when we look at every single row, it conforms to that equation. So going from a sphere to the equations is actually 
easy to show. And we could do a proof that would show that that's the case. Anytime you have a circle, you will have this equation. Now we have to ask a different question, and that is, if you have this equation and points adhere to this equation, does that always mean you have a circle? So let's take a look at that. Here we're plotting four points, and again, just as in the case that on the previous slide, when you go row by row and you ask, does x squared plus y squared equal r squared, every single row we adhere to that equation. So just based on the equation, we would conclude that we're looking at a circle. But if you look at the picture, we know it's not a circle, it's a line. So there's something else going on that we didn't check for. And the thing that we have to check for is the second thing in the definition of a sphere, and that is the radius cannot change. All of the points have to be at the same radius. So there's a condition out there called a false positive or a type 1 error. And this is essentially a condition that says you will get the results that you want to get, and sometimes you get some extra stuff that sneaks in. So in our case, if we only adhere to the equation, we will get circles and spheres, if we're talking about 3D, every single time that adhere to this equation. And sometimes we might get some stuff where the radius is moving around and it's not a circle or a sphere. That's a false positive or a type 1 error, and that's something we have to explore and address. So let's take a look at what our check looks like today. And that is, we start and then we move over to check one. We ask ourselves, do the, all the points adhere to the equation? If no, then we know we don't have a circle or a sphere. If yes, we have today concluded that we do have a circle or a sphere. Now, I do want to make one comment before I go to the next slide, and that is, one of the reasons that this has eluded us for so long, and part of the reason we've accepted false positives in this space, is because when we've worked with circles or spheres, either the left-hand side of the equation or the right-hand side of the equation has tended to be static. It hasn't moved around on us. So why would we check to see if the radius is moving now? Because for the past however many years you've been working with mathematics, it's never changed on you. But in Einstein's case, he's actually creating values that are on both sides of the equal sign. And any time that happens, we now have to explicitly check to make sure our radius hasn't changed. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to add a second check, and we're going to ask ourselves, first off, do we adhere to the equation? If no, we know we don't have a circle or a sphere. We don't have to go any further. If yes, we're now going to check for the radius and confirm that the radius is not changing. If it's not changing, then we know we have a circle or a sphere. And if it is changing, then we know we don't have a circle or a sphere. Now, one of the nice things about this second check is that if there were no false, false positives going on, this check does absolutely nothing. Let me say that again. If there are no false positives going on, this additional check does absolutely nothing. So if this check works, it's actually confirmation that there were false positives at play. The other thing I want to point out on this slide is that if you don't have a, a sphere or a circle, you can make no representation about what that shape is. You can't say it's an ellipse, you can't say it's a cone, or as I shown on the previous slide, you can't say it's a line. All we can do is make a determination of whether it's a circle or a sphere. 
Now, let's relook at Einstein's proof. Again, he really is only trying to do one main thing, which is you start with a sphere, you use the transformation point uh, equations, and then you end with a sphere. Those are essentially the steps in Einstein's proof. So let's take a look at it in detail. We're going to start with a unit sphere. And a unit sphere is basically a sphere where the radius is 1 in all directions. And what we've done is we've just plotted where the radius happens to cross the axis. Now we do our check and we say, first off, does all, do all the points adhere to the equations? So row by row we do our check and we find, yes, every time uh, it adheres to the equation. Then we do our column check by look, scanning down the, the column that has r, or the radius, and we say, how many values do we see there? There's only one value that we see, which means we only have one radius. Step one is correct. We began with a valid sphere. Step two is purely mechanical. You take each row from, from the original unit sphere, and you simply run it through Einstein's transformation equations to build each row on the other side. Now we do check three, and check three is designed, or, or excuse me, step three, and step three is designed to determine whether or not this table represents a sphere. And this is where we have to be careful, because if all we do is check against the equation, meaning we check each row on a row-by-row -row basis, every time we do that check, this equation will be valid. Let me say that again. Every time we do that check, this equation will pass. If that's all we do, we will conclude we have a sphere or a circle. We will conclude that the proof passed. But if you look at this table, you'll notice that I highlighted two values and one set of values is, is left unhighted. So you can actually th see that there are three different radius values. And we've already know, we've already learned, and we've been reminded of the fact that a sphere requires that all points adhere to the same radius. So in this case, when we perform check two, we find that the step actually failed and we don't have a sphere. What that means is that the proof failed. So let's take a look at Einstein's proof once again. Again, it's simple. It's There's only three, uh, three, uh, three sections and six sentences. And what we do is we begin with the claim. Again, I don't have a problem with the claim. This is simply what he sought to prove. Then we do the mathematics. Now here is where we have to be on guard. Because if all we do is check to make sure that the equations have been satisfied, we will conclude that the proof passed. But we know that he's trying to prove a sphere goes to a sphere, which requires that the same radius be maintained. So when we look at this, what we realize is that the proof is incomplete. And when we complete it and we find that the radius is not maintained, then we cannot reach the conclusion of a second sphere. And that's a failure of the proof. And we've also explained why people believe that it's passed, and that's because of the false positive result. So let's look at that in quick summary. First off, we asked the question, every time we have sphere 1, does that lead to points that will always adhere to equations 1? And in that case, we found that the answer is yes. But for our second question, every time we have points that adhere to equations 2, does that mean they represent a sphere? And here we find that if all you check is the equation, you will have a false positive result and claim that the answer is yes. 
and it's not until you check for the radius moving around that you realize that you don't have that second sphere, that the proof actually failed. So there are some counter-arguments to what you've just seen. Most of the counter-arguments ignore the need to have one or both spherical waves. And a spherical wave is essentially a, a, a wave, almost like a bubble, that's just expanding with time, which means at any instant in time, you can represent that as a sphere. So some have ignored the need to have a sphere or a spherical wave. Some change the shape entirely, and they will change it to either a cone or an ellipse. And we'll talk about some of those specific objections in just a moment. But the key thing to recognize is that Einstein says in his proof and what is required is that we go from a sphere to a second sphere. And until we're done with this proof, we have to apply only the rules of standard mathematics and classical mechanics, meaning you can't bring in a relativistic assumption or interpretation before these six steps or these six sentences are complete. So let's look at some of the specific counter-arguments. One is, well, the proof works because of time dilation, length contraction, or some other relativistic term. And again, you can't use that as a defense. Otherwise, we're saying relativity is right because relativity is right. And that just does, isn't a logical progression for, uh, for an argument. Number two is we say the proof works when you take into account the observer's perspective. Typically, people in this camp say the observer, observe, the observer, the moving observer sees an ellipse while the stationary observer sees a sphere. The nice thing about that argument is that's actually something that Einstein supports in section four of his 1905 paper. And in that section, he gives us equations for that sphere and that ellipse. Just like we've walked through here, the math in section three for his spherical wave proof, in section four, we find that the same math problems occur there, that the radius that should be a, a constant value or an unchanging value actually moves around. So that argument also fails for that reason. Uh, the third thing is that people will say, well, all you need is two spheres, and either they ignore the need to associate them with Einstein's equations, or they derive the, the equations, but then don't validate that they really have two spheres that are related via the equations. Uh, so that one fails. And the fourth one that I've heard is uh, very similar to number one and two, which is the transform points are really a cone. So that's the shape that we should be talking about. And again, the same thing applies here. Even though our modern interpretation of relativity says that that transform shape is a cone, that interpretation is based on relativity being right. It's based on us first having made it through those six sentences. Until we go through those six sentences, we're still bound by the rules of classical mechanics because it's that proof that establishes relativity. Now, one of the things I like to do when I hear some of these questions is come back with, or some of these objections, is to come back with a question. And what we can do here is we can look at a specific event that according to Einstein's proof, we should be able to answer. So at a specific time, and we're going to make that time one three hundred millionths of a second, there is a spherical wave front at a certain place. And we can point, we can plot points on that sphere at, at time t. And here are three points that we're going to plot. Now according to Einstein's proof, we can then take these points and convert them over to the next frame because they should represent points on that second frame. So the question is, 
Now that we've been very specific with time and x and y and z coordinates, the question is, at what time tau does the sphere exist in that second frame? In other words, we're supposed to have a sphere represented by one set of equations that exists at time t. Now we're supposed to have a second sphere that, ex that exists um, by the transform points at time tau. The question is, what is tau? Now, this is slightly of a trick question because each one of these points, a, b, and c, will, will translate into different values, um, transformed x, y, z, and t values. So tau, for each of these three values, will actually have three different tau values. Now, what's interesting there is that Einstein says there's going to be one tau value, and if we give any one of those points more importance than any of the other points, that represents a material change, a material difference between how we're treating points in one frame versus the other, and that goes against special relativity. So this is an interesting question because it, it cannot really be given an answer without refuting the principle of relativity itself. So now let's go back and just recap what we've done. We've talked about the implications of a sphere not being a sphere because of the radius changes and how that might get missed if we don't catch it as a false positive, which is actually hard to detect if you don't know it's there. And we've done this by simply reminding people of something that they already know. Now let's look at what this does to us and our understanding of the theory. When you combine this with something I talked about at the in, in a prior presentation, uh, we combine it with wavelength as a rate. Now wavelength as a rate and the, the radius cannot change are mathematical constructs. It's actually a fairly easy derivation to show that wavelength is meters per cycle, and it's a fairly easy understanding, commonly accepted understanding, that for a sphere, the radius can't change. Now, if we understand what's really going on there, then we can get rid of concepts like time dilation, length contraction, and space-time curvature. If we don't understand what's going on there, then we think we will have these terms. So for example, we know now that the radius is changing, that we don't have a sphere. But what if you thought you had a sphere and the radius is moving around on you? You need to explain that. And Einstein does that with a concept called space-time curvature. So the radius moving is the space-time curvature standpoint, and it has to be that because you have a valid sphere. So it has to, you have to have an explanation for it. Once you realize you never had a valid sphere in the first place, you explain the equations in a completely different way without the need for a concept like space-time curvature. Similarly, if you understand the behavior of wavelength as a rate, and you understand that a rate is one type and meters is a different type, then you don't have time dilation and length contraction. So let's look, however, at what we've done to the theory with our finding that the proof actually failed. And what we find is that, first off, we can't finish the special relativity derivation. We can't get to the implications, which means we don't have time dilation, we don't have length contraction. Now, general relativity is very different. And the analogy I want to use here is the case of a very high-performance car, let's say a Ferrari, with a fantastic engine and drivetrain and transmission inside of that vehicle. If it, it's, it's one of the best vehicles you've ever seen in existence. But if there's no battery in that car, that car isn't going to start. It's just going to sit there. You're not going to be able to race it. You're not going to be able to drive it. That's 
essentially where we now are with general relativity. Why? Because general relativity begins with a couple of key assumptions, predominantly of which is that you have a sphere-ellipse relationship. Well, we've taken that away with the proof. We've shown you don't have a sphere. We've shown you don't have an ellipse, which means you don't have the sphere-ellipse relationship. We've taken away the battery that drives general relativity theory. So by invalidating the proof, we've invalidated special relativity theory and general relativity theory. But the other thing that we've done is we've also removed many of the defensive blocks that have been in place. For example, now someone offering a paradox challenge can point back to something else in the derivation that they disagree with. Someone who is who's mounting a mathematical challenge now can point to the fact that the proof actually didn't pass. So this is a very important uh, proof for people who, who are challenging special relativity, but also it's very simple to convey to a broader audience because, again, we're just reminding people of something that they learned a very long time ago, which is for a sphere or a circle, the radius cannot change. So just one quick summary, and I think I've, I've covered this in the prior two presentations pretty thoroughly, so I'm only going to summarize them here, and that is if you mistreat wavelength, if you mistreat a sphere or a circle, mistreat the, the radius, and you think you have a sphere or a circle, you will end up with concepts like time dilation, length contraction, and space-time curvature. Okay? In order to get rid of those concepts, you have to go to the root cause, you have to treat wavelength as a rate meters per cycle and you have to recognize that the radius is changing and once you do that you will have a completely revised interpretation of what's really going on and that interpretation doesn't require any of the terms that are associated with relativity theory. So just to recap what we've covered today I want to remind people that we've shown that Relativity theory actually failed because the spherical wave proof failed. Now it failed because of a false positive. We thought that we had a second sphere when in fact we did not. And again, false positives are very hard to find, especially if you're not looking for it. But in order to find it, all we have to do is remind people of something that they already know, which is that for a circle or a sphere, you have to have a collection of points that have the same radius and the same center point, which means if the radius is changing, we don't have a circle or a sphere. So what this means is that we don't have relativity theory, neither special nor general relativity. The two key themes I'd like people to start to remember as you look at my work uh, is that number one, wavelength is a rate. That will really help reinforce and drive our understanding of, of why Einstein needed to conclude length contraction and time dilation, but it also helps explain why those are no longer needed. And as we've covered today, the second thing is that the radius cannot change. My name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to thank you today for allowing me the opportunity to walk you through the presentation I delivered this year at the 17th Annual NPA Conference that was held at California State University, Long Beach. As always, I appreciate your feedback and definitely welcome you passing the word and passing the message to your friends and colleagues. Look forward to you tuning in next time. Until then, be well.